Amen. If you have your Bibles, grab those uh, today and go with me once again to the book of First Thessalonians. And I want to ask you to go ahead and find your place there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've been moving uh, pretty methodically through 1 Thessalonians in the last two weeks, going through the first chapter. Today we're going to jump into the second chapter of this first letter from the Apostle Paul. We're going to start with verse 1 in just a moment, but I want to jump in at verse 13. And the reason I want you to put your eyes on verse 13 is because this is really my hope and my prayer for you. Uh, Not just today, but every Sunday as we get ready to get into the Word of God. uh, This is a part of the conviction in our hearts. So look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, and we also thank God Continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. What a powerful verse of scripture. Now that's a great verse. That communicates to us the authority of this book that you hold in your hands this morning. And and if you don't have a Bible and you want to borrow one, there's some in the chair racks underneath you. But as you hold the Bible in your hand, know that as you hear what I'm saying today, this is not just my word. This is not just my sermon or 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 a message. This is the word of God. And, And here's my prayer for you today. Number one, that you receive it when you hear it. That that's what he said, right? You can leave that verse up there, guys. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that you receive it. He said, you received the word when you heard it. How many of you know there's a difference between hearing and actually receiving a message? You can hear something and not really receive it. But Paul said, when you heard the message, you received it. And then he said, you accepted it. As it actually is. It's the word of God. And my prayer for you today is that as I declare this word to you, that you would receive it as it actually is. That you would accept it. That you would not say, well, I don't know, uh, that's his opinion. But that you would let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. And you would accept it and say, you know what? I, whether whether I, my life aligns with it or not, the reality is I've, I've bumped into an immovable object. I've bumped into the absolute truth of God's word. And when I come against an immovable object, now I have to adjust course. So that only happens if we come to accept the Word of God as it actually is. The Word of God. Otherwise, we'll always make excuses for ourselves and for our circumstance. And we'll continue to skirt around the issues that the Holy Spirit wants us to address in our heart and life. So my prayer is that you would accept it as it actually is. And thirdly, that it would do a great work in you who believe. That's what Paul said. He said, this word is doing a great work in you. So right here, we have our Bibles in our hands. Let's pray over this service today one more time. Father, in this moment, God, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, let it bring life and encouragement and strength and edification and correction even to our hearts and lives. God, I pray today that as the word goes forth, it would be received and not just heard. That it would be accepted as your authoritative 
word, God. Let me be your mouthpiece today. And Father, I pray that this word would do a great work in the hearts of your people. God, may we not leave this place the same. May we be changed more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said amen. 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 First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1. Here's what it says. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. You know this. Now, I thought it was interesting that last week we were in chapter 1 and we started with verse 4 and Paul says, for we know, brothers and sisters. You see that? In verse 1 and 4 he says, we know. And what is he talking about that he knows? He's saying that we know that the gospel produced a result. We know that their faith is legitimate, that what God has done in the church, uh, that God has chosen them, that he loves them. He said, we know this about you in the first chapter. But now in the second chapter, he says, you know some things too. See, the first chapter was a rehearsal of how this Thessalonian church received and responded to the message. He talked about how they received it and how they responded to it. But the second chapter is a rehearsal of how he communicated it. What we're about to look at is Paul rehearsing his coming and preaching the gospel to them. Chapter 1 is a defense of the church itself. They were facing persecution. And Paul is defending the the legitimacy of their relationship with Christ, of of what God is doing in them. But chapter 2 is a defense... Of the preacher. It's Paul's defense of his own leadership. See, the Jews that that were coming against this contagious church that was established by the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica, they were they were attacking the credibility of Paul as a speaker. They were coming against his uh, credibility because they thought if they could disqualify the messenger then they could disqualify the faith of those that believed his message. And so a lot of the attacks that were coming against the church, a lot of the persecution that these believers were facing was against the leadership. How many of you know that in 2,000 years, not a lot has changed in the church? A lot of the attacks come against the leadership. In fact, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, Zechariah. Chapter 3, he said these words in verse 17, or verse 7. He said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Zechariah 13, 7. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now we know that that prophecy was fulfilled on the night that Jesus was arrested. They arrested him, they bound his hands, they punched him. The Bible says on that night, all the disciples fled. They all ran away. But can I tell you that that prophecy is also fulfilled Every time a pastor has a moral failure. Every time a teacher of the word of God gets caught up in in false doctrine. The the shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter. Every time a a fellowship or denomination tries to change uh, what the word of God says. They try to change it to be more palatable to the culture than than what is actually in the Word. How many of you know every time that the enemy strikes the shepherd, the sheep scatter? And that's what they were trying to do in this situation. They were coming against Paul and his ministry. 
See, here's the thing about the devil. The Bible tells us clearly he has a threefold strategy. Steal, kill, and destroy. He's not interested in a flesh wound. If he can get a headshot, he'll take it every time. That's why it's important, by the way, that you pray for your pastors. You need to pray, the Bible says, for those in authority. Because the enemy would love nothing else than to discredit your faith. And one of the ways he does it is discrediting the messenger of that faith. That's why James said in James chapter 3 and verse 1. James said, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers. Because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. It's a high calling. It's a high mandate. It's a high responsibility. And the enemy, he knows that. And that's what's happening here in Thessalonica. So as the founder of the church, Paul is under attack. He's defending his ministry. But understand, as we get into chapter 2, this is not really about Paul. He takes 10 verses to defend his own ministry, but really it's not about him. He's defending the faith of this new church. He doesn't want them to be discouraged because the messenger that brought them the gospel becomes discredited. So all these Jews are trying to come against Paul, and Paul is trying to affirm the church. In defending himself, here's what he's going to do for us. He's going to give us a good example of what it looks like to share the gospel. And it's a good example because the Thessalonian church, the Bible says in chapter 1, we read this last week, Paul said, you became imitators of me. And so the example that he set for them, that he's about to defend in chapter 2, is an example that they followed, and in following it, they became an influence everywhere. Paul said, you became a model to all the believers. Not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but in other regions. Your faith was known everywhere. The example they followed was Paul's. And he's about to defend that. So as we look at chapter 2, I want us to try to glean a little bit from his example. I want to challenge you right here out of the gate to take the dare. How many of you have ever been dared to do something? Remember growing up? Like if somebody told you to do something stupid and... And, and you were like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And they really wanted you to do it. You knew what was coming next. I dare you. And sometimes they would even go farther. They'd say, I double dog dare you. And you knew it was on then. You don't back down from a double dog dare. Well, this summer we've been uh, running with a theme with our student ministry. Our theme has been, I dare you. All summer they've been throwing down the challenge to each other. I dare you. I dare you. It's funny, this week I was thinking about that and uh, I had a picture pop up on uh, Facebook memories. Uh, you know, it'll show you what you were doing on this day so and so, so many years ago. Back this week, in 2012, I was leading a team of students on a ministry tour out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, we had this game that, that, it wasn't my game, but it just kept surfacing in downtime. The boys would play it mostly. But the, the game was, what would you do for a dollar? If you know the name of the game, you know how to play it. What would you do for a dollar? And usually what would happen is when, you know, everybody would just be trying to kill time, somebody would throw down a, a dare, a challenge. And they would say, what would you do for a dollar? And they would have some kind of crazy dare and they would challenge them to do it. Well, this Facebook memory popped up this week. It was a picture of, of some of our students on that ministry tour. Do we have that? 
that picture. This is, this is Tyler. And, uh, man, Tyler was an awesome student. He was one of our small group leaders, went on to Tarleton University, became a, uh, campus ministry leader there. And, and this was, uh, this was out in New Mexico and, and Tyler discovered in a little pond of water outside of the van that we had been stuck in for several hours riding together, he discovered a baby frog swimming there. And he picked it up and he said, look, everybody, I got a baby frog. And about that time, out of boredom and maybe a little bit of heat exhaustion from the summer drive in the church van, somebody said, hey, Tyler, what would you do for a dollar? Now, you may notice by this picture, there's something between his teeth. And so you can imagine how the story goes from here with the baby frog and with Tyler. He was dared. He was dared. Now this summer, we didn't ask any of our students to eat any baby frogs. Not yet. But we did dare them. And the heart, the heart behind the dare is this. That Jesus is the master of the dare. That he's the ultimate master. That Jesus went up to uh, Peter and Andrew and he threw down the dare. He said, follow me. And they threw down their nets and they followed him. He said the same thing to, uh, to James and John, two other brothers. Follow me. He challenged all of his disciples with a dare of a cross. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He dared them greatly to a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. The Bible says Jesus forgave her. He didn't condemn her, but he did dare her. He looked at her and he said, go and leave your life of sin. And he threw down the challenge for them to, to do something greater, to be something more. You know, researchers have discovered that regardless of age, race, or gender, there's something in all of us that wants to take the dare. There's something in us that, that we're just compelled to want to do it. It's, it's human nature. We want to be challenged. We desire to be dared. Psychologists have called this behavior reactance. Reactance. It's the motivation to assert freedom or ability when challenged. As soon as somebody puts up the boundary and says, I bet you can't, you go, I, the reactance kicks in. Something in us wants to prove that we can. It's a natural human reaction. It's instinctual. And if you've ever taken a dare and done something that you later live to regret, you know that reactance can be a powerful motivator. We can be motivated to do things we didn't think we could otherwise do. Can I tell you this morning that God wants to redeem that reactance quality in you by giving you a higher calling this morning. God has something more for you. He wants to redeem that quality by throwing down a dare for you and for I. You know, it was missionary Amy Carmichael who said these words. She said, we will have all of eternity to celebrate the victories, but only a few hours before sunset in which to win them. Can I tell you that God wants to dare you and I today to have a contagious faith? He wants to dare us to live a life that, that is infection for the go- infectious for the gospel's sake. Paul said in verse 1, You know that our visit was not without results. 
It, it had results. You know that our visit produced results. How? How did they know that? Look at the second verse with me. He said, we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. Paul said, we know, you know, that our gospel was not without result. Why? Because we took the dare. Because we dared to share faith. Can I tell you, it is possible to go to heaven and save your soul and waste your life. It is possible. You can get to heaven and still waste your life. I want to tell you this morning, church, your potential has a shelf life. There's there's great things that God has for you to do. There's great things He's made you capable of doing. But let me tell you, there's an expiration date attached to it. Your potential has a shelf life. Let me go a little farther and say our potential as a church has a shelf life. There's incredible things that God wants to do. Things more than we could think or imagine. But if we don't step out in faith, if we don't take the dare, if we don't do the thing that He's enabled us to do in the moment that He's given us to do it, in the words of Levi Lusco, your calling is not a Twinkie. It won't last forever. All right? It's not going to last forever. It's like milk and produce. It can spoil. It can go bad. The things that God wants us to do, He wants us to do now. And Paul could look at his life, and the Thessalonians could look at Paul's ministry, and they could say, it was not without result. Because you took the dare, and you came and you proclaimed the gospel to us in the midst, in the face of intense opposition. Paul described it as outrageous the way he had been treated in Philippi. It was outrageous what they did. But he took the dare anyway. You think Paul was surprised by the persecution when he got to Thessalonica? Do you think, do you think it took him back when he realized that, boy, there's people here that don't, don't like what we're doing. There's people here that don't like the message. I, would, I want to encourage you with this thought, Paul not only was not surprised, Paul was promised that he was going to face trials. And not just before he got into town, when he came to faith. When you go back to Acts chapter 9 and you look at the story of Paul's conversion, he was on the Damascus road and suddenly he sees Jesus and and a shaft of light knocks him to his knees and he meets Jesus in that moment. Do you remember what happened there? He has this conversion experience and the Holy Spirit goes and speaks to a man named Ananias. He tells him about Paul. He tells him about how he's going to use Paul. Listen to these words in Acts chapter 9 verse 15 and 16. The Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. Ananias didn't want to go and pray for Saul. Saul was a persecutor. Saul was a terrorist. He didn't want to pray for him, but Jesus said to Ananias, I want you to go. And then in the next verse, he said, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Jesus showed Paul how much he would suffer 
for his name. In fact, much later in his ministry, towards the end of his life, as Paul was getting ready to make another trip to Jerusalem, the Bible says in Acts 20, verse 22 through 23, this is Paul speaking. He said these words, he said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. He didn't know what was going to happen, but listen to this. He said, but I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Everywhere he went, he said, I don't know what's going to happen, but one thing the Holy Spirit tells me, every time I pray, the Holy Spirit tells me, prison and hardship await me. That was the reality that Paul knew about his ministry, and yet still, He took the dare. He continued to present the gospel in the face of intense opposition. In the next chapter in Acts, chapter 22, something crazy happens. There's a guy named Agabus who's a prophet. And Paul comes walking into town and Agabus takes Paul's belt off of him. And he ties his own hands and feet up with it. And then he prophesies and he says the same thing is going to happen to the owner of this belt when he gets in the city. All, the Bible says when, they, when he said that, the people all began to try to encourage Paul not to go into the city. They said, don't go, don't go. L- listen to this verse in Acts chapter 22. It says, when he would not be dissuaded, when Paul would not be dissuaded, we gave up and we said, the Lord's will be done. They said, Paul, you just got this prophecy that that you're going to be bound hands and feet when you get into the city. Don't go. Don't go. But you know what Paul heard? He heard one more time the Holy Spirit saying, I dare you, Paul. I dare you to go into Jerusalem. I dare you to go into this city. I dare you to preach the gospel one more time in my name. And Paul took the dare. Now, Now remember what we're doing as we move through this text. Paul is defending his own ministry. He's talking about what it means to preach in the face of opposition. And this contagious church that we're looking at as a model followed his example. So as they followed his example, I want us to follow theirs. Let me give you one application out of this verse. Paul said we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi. As you know. Can I just assure you, there's no doubt that there were people in Thessalonica that were saying, you know that guy has a prison record, right? I mean, that that guy that's hosting those meetings you're going to listen to, you know he just got out of prison. But I can't believe you would listen to this guy. Did, Did you hear what happened to him? Did you hear what they said about him in Philippi? Can I just encourage you, whatever your past is, don't let it keep you from the plan and purpose that God has for you today. Don't let yesterday's prison, amen, keep you from today's purpose. Paul, Paul could have, he could have believed the headlines. He could have believed the report and so could have the church. But this was a church that didn't look at where somebody came from and use that to to decide whether they were a credible witness. They looked at what Christ had done and where they were going. Amen. Can I just tell you in this church, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. They weren't looking at where Paul came from. They were looking at where Paul was headed. 
And Paul didn't allow yesterday's prison to keep him from preaching today's sermon. He said, look, you know the way they treated me back there in Philippi. But I'm going to preach this gospel anyway. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, for the appeal that we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. Now Paul is showing us in in this verse, Satan's tactic in a nutshell. You can leave that verse up there. He's showing us what it looks like to come against the church. First of all, it's to attack the message. That's why Paul says, you know, our message wasn't an error. Satan wants you to believe that the gospel's not right, that it's not true. That this is just a book of opinions, that it's written by men, it's not inspired by God, it's not the word of God, as Paul said in verse 13. He wants us to believe, Satan wants you to think that the message is an error, but if he can't get you to believe it's an error, then he wants to attack the messenger. He wants to say that your motives are wrong, that you're just trying to trick people, that you're just trying to deceive people. It's the exact same tactic that Satan used at the very beginning, in the garden. The first time that he steps on the scene of human, of the human race, Satan comes in the form of a serpent. And what does he say? He says to Eve, did the Lord really say that you couldn't eat the fruit from the trees in the garden? What was he doing? He was attacking the message. And then Eve set him straight and said, no, that's not what God said. In fact, God said we can eat from any of the trees in the garden. We just can't eat from that tree in the middle of the garden, and if we do eat from that tree, we'll die. She understood the message clear. She believed the message. And so when Satan couldn't attack the message, he turned on the messenger. And in verse 4 of Genesis 3, he says, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You know what he was really saying in that moment? He was saying to Eve, God is withholding from you. God's not telling you the whole truth. Eve, God doesn't want you to be as powerful as him. There's something that God is keeping back from you. And the motivation, the tactic of the enemy that caused her to give in to temptation in that moment was that though she believed the message, she doubted the messenger. How many times do we see that happen in our world today? There are so many people today. In fact, the Barna Group has done research. And they've said that 10% of people in America that say they're Christians and they love Jesus have no part in the church. 10%. Why? Because they would say, oh no, we love the message. We love the message. But we don't want nothing to do with the church. The church, by the way, is the messenger. The church is the representation of Christ in the earth. And yet research says that there's this this whole growing group of people in our society that say, love the message, love Jesus. I just don't want anything to do with the church. I'm telling you, it's a strategy of Satan to disrupt the work of God in the earth. The church is the living expression of Christ in the earth. The church is God's plan A for salvation for the world. And by the way, there isn't a plan B. Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church. 
So how can a person say that I love Jesus who is the head of the church, but I don't love his body? How can a person say I love Jesus, the groom, but I don't love his bride, the church? It's a it's a false sense of relationship with God, because the reality is the Bible says that if you can't love your brother who you can see, you don't love a God who you can't see. And so Satan is just fine with people believing the message. Staying at home on the weekend. Oh, I believe the Bible. Don't ever read it, but I believe it. Oh, I love Jesus. Don't ever show up to worship him, but I love Jesus. The devil is just fine with you accepting the message so long as you've disqualified the messenger. He's working to stop the church. But this was a contagious church. And it didn't work. And Paul said, you know, you know what what our ministry was like among you. Look at verse 4. He says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. Here was the accusation that Paul was countering in this moment. There were Jews who were furious that Paul was preaching a gospel of salvation by grace through faith. Paul was proclaiming that these Gentile people, who were not the children of Israel, they had no lineage, they they had no connection to the Ten Commandments and the, the Old Covenant. Paul was preaching a gospel that said, you are the seed of Abraham because of salvation, not because of your birthright, not because of your religious uh, keeping of the commands, but by grace. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you're the seed of Abraham. That so infuriated the people that had lived their whole lives trying to keep all the commands. Who had lived their whole life with a sense of arrogance about uh, their their nationality and, and who they were. That we're the covenant people of God. And they were furious that he was preaching this gospel that is so simple that says, Hey, whoever you are, if you'll come by faith, you can be saved. You can be the seed of Abraham. You can be the blessed children of God. And so what they said is this. They said, Paul is just preaching a message that people want to hear. That They're just preaching what everybody wants to hear. That's why that church is growing. They're just telling people what they want to hear. And that was the accusation. Paul said, listen, we're not preaching a message that that people want. We're preaching to please God, not people. Can I tell you that the message that pleases God is a message of good news? It is good news to those who are perishing. It's good news. When the angels showed up to the shepherds in the field, what did they say? They said, behold, we bring you great tidings of good news, which shall be for all the people. It's, it's joyful. There's some people, they're so religious that they, they think that it's unholy to be happy. Like, if you're laughing, if you're having a good time, you're not religious enough. You must not be doing it right. By the way, that's the same thing they accused Jesus of. Because Jesus was willing to go to the party and celebrate with people. And they said, well, he's, he's not holy. He's a drunkard. Why? Because Jesus... Preach the gospel of joy. Jesus preached the gospel of good news. And it ought to be good news. The message that pleases God is a joyful message. But it's a message of grace, not of works. And verse 5, 
he, he goes on to defend his ministry. Look at it with me. In verse 5, he says, You know that we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask on to cover up greed. God is our witness. Both here and in verse 9, the accusation against Paul was that he was in it for the money. He was being greedy. You know, he's just staying and preaching there. He's collecting offerings. He's taking people's money. Skip down to verse 9 because it's on the same topic. Verse 9, he says, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order to not be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel to you. What was Paul reminding them of? He was saying, we went above and beyond. Now in Acts, we learned that the church at Philippi was actually supporting Paul's ministry while he was preaching in Thessalonica. He didn't want to be a burden to this new church that was just getting started. And so in addition to receiving his support from another more established church, Paul also worked another job. He was a tent maker. And so he was, he was doing bivocational work, earning his income and serving in the ministry. He was going above and beyond so as not to be an offense or a burden to this church or to live above reproach in this community. And yet still, people, people accused him. They said, well, Paul's just doing it for the money. Look at verse 6. Paul's defending his ministry. He says, we were not looking for praise from people. Not from you or from anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. So here's another accusation. Coming against Paul and Silas and Timothy. People were saying, you're just trying to make a name for yourself. That's what all this is about. All, all your preaching, all your sharing your faith, sharing your story, the encounter that you had with God. You're just trying to make a name for yourself. Praise God that the church is not being built today on the personalities of a few. It's being built on the sacrifice of the many. This church is not going to uh, be contagious because there's a few flamboyant personalities in the mix. The church is contagious because of the body of Christ coming together and doing the work of the ministry. These people are grasping for straws. Now they're saying, well, Paul's just in it for the glory. Glory? Are you kidding me? Everywhere he goes, he's persecuted. Everywhere he goes, he's, he's thrown in prison. They, they, were, they were trying to throw, uh, throw mud at the church and at the testimony of the leader of this church. And Paul points back to this church. And he says, look, we're not looking for praise from people. Not from you or anyone else. We could have asserted authority, but we didn't. We didn't walk around with our chest puffed out. If people came up to Paul to buy a tent, he didn't say, hey, it's Apostle Paul to you, buddy. <laughs> he didn't puff his chest out and have a big ego. He said, no, we, we, didn't, we didn't assert ourselves in that way. We came, and he's going to get to this even more in the next couple verses. We were humble with you. Look at verse 7. He says, instead, we were like young children. Among you. Literally, what he's saying is we were gentle. We were gentle among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Again, Paul's saying we weren't, we weren't dictators. 
We weren't commanding you, uh, demanding things of you. We were, we were gentle among you. All these accusations that, that we've read from verse 2 down to verse 7. All these things describe what verse 2 talks about as strong opposition. In the face of strong opposition, we dared to tell you His gospel. Can I tell you the gospel is under attack? And so are the messengers. I want to dare you this morning to share it anyway. To share the message anyway. Whatever the attack might be. Whatever the, the pressure you might be feeling of other people maybe attacking the, the authenticity of your message. You want to get into some debate with you on, on, on scholarship or on theology. Or maybe the, the accusation is towards you as the messenger. Maybe every time you try to share the message, somebody wants to remind you of the prison you used to be in. Tell you about all the reasons you're disqualified. Tell you about all the impure motives they think you have. Or why you're just trying to trick people. Or, or why you're just trying to make a name for yourself. Or why you're just trying to amass a crowd. Or, or that you're just telling people what they want to hear. You'll do anything to, to get somebody. All these accusations. They come against the church. Look at verse 8 with me. This is my favorite verse in this chapter. Paul says this. He says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Now just think about that. There is not a greater thing in the world that you could share with somebody than the gospel. The gospel is the greatest message that anybody could share. If you were going to do one kind deed for a person, it ought to be tell them about Jesus. If you can only do one thing that would have the biggest impact in their life, it ought to be sharing the gospel. And yet for Paul, because he loved this church, he said it was not enough for us to share the greatest news that's ever been told in the history of the human race. Not enough for us. No, we had to go farther than that. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to not only share with you the gospel, but our lives as well. Can I dare you this morning to love the family of God like that? I mean, that's what makes a church contagious. Not just a powerful proclamation of the gospel, but that there's a love that is so genuine, that is so authentic, that we delight, that we delight to share our lives with one another. I, I was thinking about this verse this week. And by the way, this verse has been highlighted in my Bible for, for years. It's a good reminder to me of what it really is supposed to be about to serve in the ministry. It's not about just getting up on Sunday morning and preaching a message to a bunch of eyeballs that are staring back at me. No, the ministry is about delighting to do life together. To share my life with you and to have you share yours with me. That's what ministry is. And one of the greatest blessings that God has given me was when He called me and my family back to the Susquehanna Valley. After we served in 10 years in North Texas. Now, now leaving North Texas was hard. Not because of selling a house or, or leaving a, a job. But because of the people. Because we have 10 years of relationship there. And, and it was hard to pull away from those people. But one of the greatest delights of my life has been that God 
in His sovereignty, of all the places He could have sent us, brought me back to a place where I could say I delighted to share my life with people. And in coming here, we didn't completely start over. I think about people like Ted and Carol Byers, who who I've known since I was nine years old. That when I couldn't play eight chords on the piano, Carol was sitting next to me on the organ, steering me straight. I mean, people like Steve and Pam Mellinger, when our first daughter was born, and we were like every first-time parent, who were like Nazis taking care of their kids, like nobody touched my baby. We were super protective. Pam took care of Morgan when she was a newborn. So the day could go back to work. I got, I got to thinking about these relationships. People that, that I've known for, for years. I've, my mother-in-law, right here on the front row, gets to be a part of the same church. That's what ministry is. That's, it's doing life together. I mean, Tim and Corey and I went to high school together. She used to let me ride with her in a little geo tracker. You know, I think about those things are priceless to me. You know what one of my heart's desire is? Honestly, this is just between me and God. It's been a prayer of my heart that God, you would let me minister in one place for 30 years. I I don't want to be one of those people that, that pastor church for two years, goes somewhere else for three years, goes somewhere else. Because listen, this is my heart and I'm not throwing stones at anybody, but the ministry is not a ladder to be climbed. Ministry is a life to be shared. And it's not just from the pulpit. Amen. Amen. It's not just from the platform. That God has called us. He dares us to live that kind of authentic life. This is the model that Paul gave the church at Thessalonica. This is what they followed. And in following his example, they became contagious. People saw that church. And they stood in awe. And they wondered at what? And how they not only shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, but how they delighted To share their very lives with one another. They shared their lives with each other. I want to dedicate babies. Watch them grow up in the church. Do their wedding. And then dedicate their babies. Man, ministry gets exciting when we get involved in each other's life. That's why Jesus didn't say, sign up for my class. He said, follow me. He didn't invite the disciples to three years of seminary. He said, when they said, where are you staying? He said, come and see. Come and see. I want you to know where I live. I want you to know how I follow God. Because one day I'm trusting you with the mission of the church. They shared their lives. They shared their lives. I want you to know, church, I'm delighted to share not only the gospel, but my very life with you. Look at the next verse with me. We'll skip verse 9. We already read that one earlier. Verse 10 to 12. Paul says, You are witnesses and so is God. Of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. Encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. Who calls you into his kingdom and glory. 
in these last few words, last couple verses here of his own defense of his ministry, Paul turns back to this illustration of the family nature of the body of Christ. He says, we were gentle among you like children. He said, we cared for you like a a mother whose nursing cares for a child. That was the imagery that Paul's trying to evoke their imaginations to understand how much this church means to him that he so gladly did life with. He said, we loved you and cared for you like a mother nursing children. And then he said, he said, we dealt with each of you like a father. I want you to hear the the personal touch in that statement. This this is not the platform. He says, we dealt with each of you. This was personal relationships that Paul had with those who were receiving this letter. He said, we had a personal relationship. We dealt with each of you as a father deals with their son. And then he he says, how? He says what the, the ministry looks like in the church. In verse 12, he gives us three ways that we should deal with each other. And this is a practical takeaway for us. He says, here's how ministry in the church, how love is expressed in the family of God. He said, we encouraged you. Encouraging. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, that we should not forsake gathering together. Don't stop meeting together. Verse 25 of Hebrews 10, as some are in the manner of doing. But encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord, as we see the, the end time events coming more and more into fruition, what we ought to do in response to that is begin to encourage each other more and more. Again, he's not talking about from the platform. He said each one of you encouraging each other. Secondly, he said comforting. You realize that's, that's a part of our expression of love in the body of Christ. Comforting one another. You know, you can't always change somebody's circumstances. You can see somebody going through something. Your heart can go, go out to them. You can't change their circumstances, but you're called to comfort them. To, to, to walk through sorrow with those who are sorrowing. And, and Paul said, we comforted you. He goes on in, in 2 Corinthians to describe it like this. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. Then he says, He, this God of all comfort, comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort each other with the same comfort that we received. That's the heart of God. That when we come together as the body, that we comfort and encourage each other. Paul said, we did that with a fatherly affection. But there was one more thing that he said we did. Not only did we encourage you in verse 12, not only did we comfort you, he said, and we urged you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. We urge you to live lives worthy of God. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 Paul says, let us consider how we can spur one another on to good deeds, to encourage one another, to do more. Paul dared to share his faith in the face of strong opposition with this church. He comforted them, he encouraged them, and he also urged them to live a life worthy of the gospel. That's what God has called us to do. That's the example that the Thessalonians followed. That's how they became 
a contagious church. That each one of us has a mandate from God. And they followed his example. He was gentle among them. Verse 7. He cared for them like a mother. Verse 8. He was personal with them like a father. Verse 11. And he encouraged them. He comforted them. He urged them. God is calling us to do the same thing. That's what I'm doing this morning. I hope you hear my heart. I'm urging you to live a life worthy of the gospel. I dare you to be that kind of church. I dare you to see what God will do if we would really invest ourselves in not just sharing the gospel, not just living the gospel, but in sharing our lives also. If we'll do it, God will make this a contagious church. He'll make this a church whose faith, as it says in the first chapter, the eighth verse, a church whose faith is known throughout the whole world, a church whose faith is known everywhere. Now, at the end of this service, I want to take a moment and I want to pray for this church. I want to pray that God would make us contagious in our faith. Before I pray a prayer for us collectively as a body, I want to just make a simple invitation. Maybe you're here today and and you're not a part of the church, this church or the capital C church. The church that Jesus is coming back for. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus as Lord, you're not a part of the church. And if you're here today and you want to accept Christ as your Savior, I want to lead you in a prayer. Before I pray that prayer, I want to just simply share with you from the Word of God what the gospel is. I just don't want to assume that you know. So here's the invitation. The Bible says, Paul was explaining what the gospel is. By the way, the gospel is not just a sermon from the Bible. The gospel is the message of salvation. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 3. He said, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. That He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said, It's of first importance. Can I tell you, there's nothing more important than what you do with the gospel. Nothing more important. The one question that you're going to have to deal with when your life ends is what did you do with the Son of God? It's of first importance. And Paul said, Christ. Christ died. Can I just tell you simply, Jesus was not just a good man. Jesus was not just a prophet. Jesus was not just a teacher. He was the Christ. He's not just the Son of God. He's God the Son. He's the Savior of the world. So the gospel is that you would believe of first importance that Christ died. He died, he said, for our sins. That's the bad news. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. It's why Christ died. 
because I couldn't pay for my sin because you couldn't pay for yours. There's nothing that you could do could make you right with God. Nothing you can do from here forward can earn acceptance in the eyes of God. That's why Christ died. According to the scripture, all the way back in Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament, the scripture points to the reality that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And so Christ came and he died according to the scripture. He was buried. He died a physical death. The good news is, Paul goes on to say, he was raised on the third day. Because he was raised from the dead, that's where our hope lies today. We have hope. You have hope. If you put your faith in Jesus, and the hope is this, the hope is that when I die, I'm going to rise. I'm going to rise. I'm going to be with Jesus. That's the gospel. And so in making this invitation, I want you to understand. It's a simple acknowledgement that first of all, this is the most important thing. Second of all, Jesus is God, the son. And third, I'm a sinner. But he died for my sin. Not only did he die for my sin, but he raised to life. And in raising to life, The Bible says he made a public show of the enemy. There's a taunt in the word of God that says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because the curse of death has been broken. The sting has been removed. Because we have this hope that though we die, we shall live. Now, if you're here today and you say, You know what? I've never received that. I've heard heard about God before. Maybe you've even read the Bible. I've never received the gospel and put my faith in Jesus. But you want to today. I want to pray for you right now. I want to ask you, would you bow your head with me? We're going to, at the end of this service, take a moment to respond. To respond in our hearts to the Spirit of God. Father, right now, I ask your Holy Spirit to impress upon our hearts the truth about where we stand with you. God, may we put no stock in a religious heritage. May we put... No confidence in biblical knowledge. God, may we cut right to the very core of who we are. And be honest with you in this moment. Now I'm asking you in this moment. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Where he is the Lord of your life. And you are trusting him for your eternal salvation. But you want to make that decision today. And you want to pray a prayer saying, God, I know I'm a sinner, but I know you're a savior and your grace is greater than my sin. You want to put your trust in him today, right now, without any reservation. Would you lift your hand? Say, Pastor, that's me. Raise your hand high. Say, that's me. I want to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I want to ask him to be the Lord of my life. I'm looking all across this room. Right now, you say, that's me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. Praise God. Praise God. What a moment. What a moment that the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to your heart. You sense Him and some of you have responded already. Listen, whether you raise your hand or not, I'm going to pray this prayer and I want to ask you to say it with me. If you don't have a relationship with God, in this moment, understand this 
This is not a magic formula. This is a statement of faith. We're going to pray this prayer. We're going to ask Jesus to do what only He can do. Come on, say this after me all over this room. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you're a Savior. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, you're the only way to the Father. So I put my faith in you. I believe your death was enough to forgive my sins. And I believe you raised to life. Because you live, I live also. I receive salvation today. I receive eternal life. The old me is gone. The new has come. In Jesus' name. I'm a new creation. Amen. 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 Can we stand to our feet today all over this room and give God thanks for His Word, for His promises that are still true today. Amen. Church, as we close this service, I want to pray the prayer that we started with. Right there in the 13th verse. I want to pray that the Word of God would work in our hearts and in our lives. I want to dare you. I want to dare us. Let's be contagious. Let's be a church whose faith is known everywhere. Let's share not just the gospel, but let's share our lives with one another. Let's experience heaven on earth together. Father, I pray today for your church. God, as your word has gone forth, God, I pray that it has been received today as it truly is the word of God. Father, I pray that the church would accept your word today. Lord, let it work in their hearts and in their lives. God, I thank you today that you are building in us a contagious faith. Thank you, God, for influence. Thank you, Lord God, for for circles and for networks that each of us can reach into. Thank you that together our reach is far greater than it is with any one of us alone. Father, I pray that in the days and the weeks and in the months to come, God, this would become more than a message and more than a model. That it would be something that we embody as the people of God right here at Wrightsville Assembly of God. Lord, let our faith be infectious. And let our message, let your message ring out everywhere for your glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 God bless you.